the scripture reference this morning is Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you, so that I too should be glad, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I think about fear and trembling this time of year, I tend to think about the house that's just down the road from me in Columbiana. Every fall, uh, the most elaborate and expansive set of Halloween decorations I've ever seen on a house is broken out. Can you get a picture, Ron, of this? Yeah. It, and I think more stuff might have been added since this picture. But it, it seems to be like a rotation. It's not just, uh, it's not just uh, the same stuff every year. It's new stuff all the time. When my daughter, we first moved here, uh, my daughter, Anna Lee, was so scared of this house, she wouldn't even go up to it. Um, so that's what I think about. You can take that down, thanks. That's what I think about this time of year when I think about fear and trembling. And yet Paul is taking those words, fear and trembling, and he's putting them with salvation. How many of you woke up in a cold sweat this morning and, and drove to church trembling with your hands at the steering wheel as you worked out your salvation? And not only that, but Paul says to work out your salvation. That sounds strange because work and salvation don't usually, those aren't usually paired together. Salvation, we're told, is a free gift from God, not something associated with work. What's going on here? Well, look, look closely to start at what Paul says. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Do you see the difference? Paul is saying to them, you have been saved. Work that out. You have been rescued and delivered from the bondage of sin and death by Jesus Christ. You have been brought into a new way of living, into the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom of God. Now work out what that means. Paul isn't telling them that, that you can do this for yourselves, that you can earn that. It's Jesus Christ who does the rescuing and the saving. But he's saying you are rescued and saved through obedience, to an obedient life. Dallas Willard says grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Earning is an attitude. 
effort is an action. The life of a disciple of Jesus is not a passive one. The life of a disciple of Jesus is one of obedience and work. And when Paul uses this word work, what the scholars will tell you who know the Greek language very well is that Paul means like work. Paul means like work like your parents and your grandparents would have recognized work. Like heavy labor that makes you sweat, that gives you calluses, that makes you sore, that makes you bone tired. That's the kind of work that Paul's talking about. Hard labor that should be done with fear and trembling. What does this mean, fear and trembling? I think the most helpful translation I heard was utter seriousness. Paul is linking, if you see at the beginning of this passage, there's that word therefore, so you want to usually look backwards. And Paul is linking this admonition to the Christ hymn, this awe-inspiring hymn that we looked at two weeks ago that I said should leave your mouth just agape. It's so stunning. Paul is linking salvation to that, and he's saying, this, this following Jesus thing, this is serious business. A couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with people, some people at church at a meeting about clever and humorous church marquee signs. And I, I'll just be honest with you, I find them very challenging. And don't get me wrong, there's some decent ones, like tweet others as you would like to be tweeted. I like that one. I don't mean to be disrespectful of churches that use those. If you love those, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of you. Some of you love a good, clever, moderately funny church marquee sign. But this passage, it, it helped me understand why I struggle with these. Because for me, those signs give me the impression that what's happening in that space, what's happening among those people, is really not all that serious. That if you came and joined us, if you joined God's people in this space, Rather than something awe-inspiring, you might find something kind of like below-average comedy. Because that's what you're going to get from me if you're looking for comedy. Or we're like people trying to get, get they're driving down 46, and so we got to get their attention long enough to sell them a product that they may or may not want. Like, get your sweet corn from Spring Rose, get your fertilizer from Millstone, get your Whopper at Burger King, and get your Jesus here. Yeah, Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, you being saved from darkness and made citizens of the kingdom of God, that is something that is to be worked out as a community and, in, and individuals with fear and trembling, with utter seriousness. I don't know how many churches would allow on that marquee, join us Sunday at 1030 and throughout the week as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But you know, as I was thinking this week, there is one entity I know of that advertises something like this. That is completely upfront about the rigors and the dangers they are inviting people into, and that is the United States military. I have driven in my life by many, many military recruitment signs, and I have never seen one of them have a joke or try to be clever. Think about what you see when you drive by military recruitment signs. Usually what I think of is men and women maybe crawling through the mud, arduous circumstances. I think about uh, uh, somebody standing very erect with the serious look on their face, and they are saying, in a sense, in those advertisements, we are, what we're about is utterly serious. What we are about, and we're not going to hide it, involves sweat and pain and toil and should be approached with some amount of fear and trembling. 
And almost always, there is an appeal to a higher cause, honor, country, duty, sacrifice. Why is that? Why aren't the military advertisements using clever jokes? Because if you're, if you're going to give your life to something like the military, if you're going to put yourself on your literal life on the line, it better be worth it. You better be giving your life to something that's bigger than yourself. I'm not telling you that because I think military recruitment posters are good. I'm telling you because I think they're more honest with their invitations than we often are as churches. They are more upfront about the cost and seriousness and rigors that we are inviting people into than we as a church usually are in inviting people to follow Jesus. Like, think about it. What was Jesus' pitch in Mark? We just went through Mark last year. If anyone would come after me, invitation, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I'm telling you what, never let Jesus be in charge of church marching signs. Don't ever give Jesus that sign because you're probably not going to like what goes up on the marquee. But it's not just Jesus, it's Paul. For Paul, being rescued from sin and death and brought into the kingdom of God doesn't mean we are saved into a life of leisure and comfort. We are saved into, in Paul's words, a life of work, of sacrifice, likely suffering, and for some, maybe even death. And that was certainly what Paul and the Philippians were facing. But here's the deal. For me, I'll speak for myself. Give me honesty over mediocre joke any day. Because if salvation, as I understand it, entails the total surrender of my life to Jesus Christ, I want to give my life to something that matters. I want to give my life to something that's bigger than myself. I don't want to give my life to some cheap joke. I want to give my life to something that's inspiring and serious. What we preach here, what we advertise, is not as hard a clever joke or a cheap product. It is Christ crucified. It is the Christ hymn. It is this stunning picture of God incarnate in the person of Jesus in obedience, descending to the lowest imaginable depths in humiliation and dying, and then being exalted to the highest place to whom one day every knee will bow. It is a stunning scene, as I tried to, to, to get you to see. It should leave us in awe. It should leave us in fear and trembling and saying, I want to give my life to that. I want to give my life to that person. Because whatever is going to be asked of me in this journey as I work out my salvation, obedience, toil, sweat, labor, that's worth it. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It sounds like, at first glance, at first we hear that Paul is completely contradicting himself. It sounds like Paul has told the Philippians, work out your salvation. And then the very next breath, he says, but in reality, it's God who works it out, who works in you. Work really hard, as I said, toil, labor, sweat. But then whatever fruit comes from that, Paul is saying, step back and realize that it's actually God, the one that's producing, that's working in you. You see this paradox uh, popping up in Paul's letters from time to time. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul writes, I, listen to this, I worked harder than all of them, 
yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I busted my butt more than any of those other apostles. But you know what? At the end of the day, it wasn't me. It was God working through me. It was only possible by the grace of God, this unmerited favor of God, that that was possible. See, Paul's not, he doesn't shy away from talking about how hard he works. He doesn't shy away from talking about how much he has suffered for the gospel. But just as quickly as he points that out, he says, but it was God working in me. Or he'll say in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. All right, this is, I think this is, this is hard for me to get my mind around, so hang with me here. But I think Paul is saying we are called to both work out our salvation in tangible, concrete ways to do good works, and yet recognize that these works are only possible through the power and grace of God. Lynn Coick in her, in her commentary gives an illustration that, that might be helpful. She says, God is not doing the good works for the Philippian believers as a parent might do a child's homework. Instead, God is making it possible for them to, to do it by giving them access to the power to accomplish what he has asked. Parents give their child a good supper, a quiet place free of distractions, and encouraging comments about their previous work. Thus, well fortified and encouraged, with the proper tools and environment, the student can do his or her homework. God didn't create us to be mindless robots. God, God honored us. God dignified enough to give us autonomy, to give us free choice. But at the same time, God did not leave us to our own devices. God enables the good work that is done in us because we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and because we have the empowering and the energizing gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'll be honest with you, I think this is a mystery to me. And I could, I could try to spend more time trying to explain it, but let me see if I could bring this down to earth a little bit. Just think about someone in your life, and it could be past, it could be present, a disciple of Jesus who you just deeply admire their faith. They are very mature or very mature along their discipleship journey. They worked out their faith with fear and trembling. Who, like Paul, weren't afraid to immerse themselves in the gritty and unglamorous work that comes with serving God and others. But at the same time, okay, got that person, do you have someone in your mind? At the same time, if you were to go up to that person and kind of speak about how much you admire their work, their response might be something closer to Luke 17.10 where they say, we have only done our duty. We've only done our duty. See, somehow as disciples of Jesus, we're called to hold these two things together. We are to hold the fact that together that we are called to work out our salvation in very concrete ways. We are called to obedience. We are justified to obedience. And at the very same time, humbly recognize that whatever good we are able to accomplish in this life is by the grace of God. See, one of the things this does on a more practical level, is this helps protect us from self-righteousness. See, the challenge is if, if we don't recognize that the good within us is coming from God, we begin to think, you know, the good that's coming from me is coming from my own hard work. It's coming from my own morality. I'm a really self-disciplined person. I'm a good person. I don't know about that person. And see, once you go down that path, once you start giving yourself all the credit, you are on the path to self-righteousness and judgmentalism. 
worked hard. I was good. Why can't they be good like me? Think about what do you tend to be, what do you tend to be self-righteous about? I'll speak for myself. I tend to be self-righteous about the things that I've worked hard for. I tend to be self-righteous about the things I have toiled for and I have been disciplined. I have earned the old-fashioned way. Maybe, maybe you grew up, you didn't have a lot of money in your house. Maybe there wasn't a lot of opportunity, and you poured yourself into building up a business. And you took something that was nothing, and you built that business from the bottom up into a successful business. And you look over at the other person who's struggling financially, and you think, well, they didn't work as hard as I did. If they just would have worked as hard as I did, man, they, they could have succeeded too. But see, as followers of Jesus, we do not have that opportunity. As followers of Jesus, we bust our butt, we work, we labor, we toil for the kingdom, and then when the fruits come, we step back and we say, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. That's how we hold this together. We are called to good works, and we are called to humility. And Paul is giving us a way about how we can hold that together. All right, let's keep going. Because Paul doesn't stop there. He's telling them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And then he's going to give them a really concrete way of doing this. How are you going to do this? Stop grumbling and arguing. That's what he says. Like, we, don't, we might expect, like, read your Bibles, pray, uh, volunteer. That's how you're going to work it out. Those, might be, those are good ways. But he says, no, stop arguing and grumbling. Verse 14, look at it if you want. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you might become, so that you may become blameless and pure. So how often do you hear, I hear Christians talk about salvation a lot. And I hear Christians, particularly when I was growing up, maybe more talk about purity a lot. Not bad things, good things. But rarely do I hear, like, stop grumbling in that same conversation. Quit the arguing. Quit talking about each other behind each other's backs. Quit infighting, quit complaining, quit gossiping, quit whining. Why does Paul have to say this in such stark terms? Because here's, here's the reality of my experience about grumbling. I think grumbling kind of feels good. <laughs> You're laughing because you, it feels good for a moment. See, when I grumble, when I tear someone down, for a second, I, I lift my own self up. I stand a little bit taller. I feel a little more self-justified. Here's the deal. What you think is kind of nourishing or healing you for a second, it's just like digesting poison. See, see grumbling and gossiping about another person, it's a cheap, hollow thrill that comes at the expense of another person. And in the end, it just makes you feel worse. Scott Sauls compares gossip to, I've said this before, to pornography. Gossip is pornography of the mouth, a cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. There was a stretch of time in my life before I moved here where I was really struggling with, with a couple of people that I was working with and going to church with. Well, every, a few days a week, at least, I would come home to Christiana and I would just unload on Christiana. You would not believe what this person did. You would not believe what I had to put up with today. And on and on. And it felt good for a moment. 
But in the end, it was like poison. Not only was it bad for me, not only was it bad for my relationship with that other person, but all that grumbling and slandering was also bad for my wife. And when we moved here to Ohio, I think as one of the nice things about a move is you get a chance to do a reset in your life. And we said, man, we've got to change this. For one, I never heard my parents talk about other people the way you and I sometimes talk about people in front of our kids. We both agree we've got to work on changing this dynamic. Let me, let me shoot straight with you. If this is a pattern in your house where, where somebody is constantly complaining or grumbling about who they work with, about their life, about people at church, this is a problem. If that's a dynamic in your marriage, I understand it. You need to pray to God that you stop doing that. It might feel, see, what we typically do is they say, well, I'm just getting a little frustration out. I'm just kind of working through things here. What you're doing most likely is you're ingesting poison. This doesn't mean you don't talk about challenges. But, but at least in my mind, there's a difference about talking about challenges honestly in a godly and constructive way that still dignifies and honors the person that I'm struggling with and just grumbling. Here's the test I try to use for myself. If, if, if that person, I'm talking to my wife, if that person is sitting right there, what would they think about what I'm saying? Would they think that's a fair assessment of the situation? And if I do that, I don't do it probably as much as I should, near as much, but it almost immediately, the anger drops. Because there's no way I would say that if, with them right there. There's no way I would, that's not dignifying to them what I'm saying to my wife. But here's the deal. Not only is that, is that toxic to your marriage, but it can be deadly to a church community. Remember, this is the context of the, uh, the letter to Philippians. Paul is writing to a community that is struggling with disunity, that is struggling with some kind of internal conflict that we're not completely aware of. And we've talked about some of the ways that Paul is addressing this disunity. We've already seen that he's, he's admonishing them to value others above themselves, to look out for the interests of others and not their own. To, to, as I said a few weeks ago, to, to see these, these are your brothers and sisters. You have the same heavenly father. Treat them like you would your biological brothers and sisters. And now Paul is saying, you want to stop disunity in church? Stop grumbling and arguing. Why is that? Why is that such a threat? Why is grumbling such a threat to a, a church? Well, Jesus talks about this. If you remember, again, in Mark's gospel, at one point he's casting out demon, a demon, and he's accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus' response is basically like, that's a ridiculous point. Because why would Satan do that? If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Its end has come. If a church community is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Its end has come. It is at times, like I said, necessary to talk about challenges you're having with other people, uh, that is, there's time for that. Same thing with the church. There is a place and time for constructive criticism of the church. The church is by no means above criticism. Leaders in the church are by no means above criticism. But that's different than this kind of low-level grumbling that happens in a church. When you go around and just kind of spice up the conversations with just a little bit of grumbling about what you didn't like on Sunday morning or a little bit of grumbling about what this person you didn't really appreciate. It's a low-level grumble, and it's toxic. 
Lynn Coek again tells a story in her commentary, a, a Jewish story that speaks to the damage when people spread rumors and slander. The story goes like this. A man, uh, he was telling these nasty lies about a Jewish rabbi, a local rabbi, and after a while he started feeling bad about this. So he, he went to the rabbi and he, and he asked for the rabbi's forgiveness. And he also wanted to make things right. And so the rabbi, he, he, he gave him a feather pillow and he cut it open and he told him to go scatter those feathers into the wind. So the man did this, and he returned to the rabbi, and the rabbi said, now go and collect those feathers. And the man's heart sank, for the feathers had flown far and wide. So too, the rabbi declared, do the rumors and lies fly, and there's no getting them back. See, that, that low level of grumbling, that sniping about somebody else in the church, once you release that, you're not getting it back. Once that goes out, you're not getting it back. Here's my, here's my charge for you today. If you find yourself grumbling against people in the church or leaders in the church, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, why am I not going directly to them to talk about the problem? Okay? That should be the first question. Now, there might be, in circumstances, some legitimate reasons why you're not going to that person. Maybe there's some uh, power imbalance dynamics, okay? There's, there's sometimes some reasons why you need to get help, you need to go to somebody else, and maybe go uh, with other people. But you need to ask yourself, if, if this is so important that I'm going to unload this on my spouse or my friend, why am I not going to them and talking about this? That's exactly what Jesus instructed us to do, and yet... So rarely do that. So rarely. And if somebody in our fellowship is grumbling to you about someone else in the church, ask them, have you talked to that person? Really, it's the responsibility goes both ways. We need to hold each other accountable. As soon as somebody starts grumbling to us, let's ask them, hey, have you talked to that person? I don't even know if they realize what they did. They probably don't even realize they did that. Let's go talk about this. Let's go work this out. Second thing, so ask yourself, why am I not talking to that person about it? Second thing, um, sometimes you're just grumbling about things and there's really nothing you can do about it, right? There's not really, you can't, there's not really a point to going to the other person because really it's more about you. So Alan Redpath, he was a pastor at Moody Church in Chicago in the 1950s, he offers the think test. So I'm going to try to offer a kind of practical test that you can ask yourself. Can you, can you put up that slide, Ron? So as you're thinking about, like, should I go ahead and say this? He's, he says, do the think test. T, is it true? Okay. Is what I'm about to say true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? And Redpath says, if I'm about, what I'm about to say does not pass those tests, I'm going to shut my mouth. Okay? This is a, we need to be thinking about, before we start to do this grumbling, we've got to ask ourselves these questions. Why am I not talking to them? And two, if there's no need to talk to them, do I, do I really need to say this? Thanks, Ron. If you keep going, Paul then says, this is all leading up to a place, okay? work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling, stop arguing and grumbling, so that you will shine like stars in the sky. 
Paul just, he doesn't want to just them to stop grumbling just for internal purposes, just so that the church community is healthy, though that's essential. He wants them to be a light in a sin-darkened world. He, Paul knows that, man, grumbling and disunity and arguing, that harms the witness of Jesus Christ's church. How do, when I think about it, how do we, sh- Pastor Sam talked about this last week, how do we shine as followers of Jesus in a sin-darkened world? Through our good works, but not through our self-righteousness. Through our unity, not through our grumbling. People are drawn to Jesus' church not by self-righteousness and grumbling. That, those are the things that make people want to run away. Self-righteousness and grumbling are not light. Good works are light. Humility, that's a light. Unity, that's a light. Man, these people really love each other. Godly living, that's a light. Those are lights to the world. This is, this is a serious passage. This is a serious call to obedience, to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to not grumble and argue. And I think for a lot of us, this hits really close to home. I know it does for me. And Paul even seems to be hinting at this passage that, you know, I don't even know how much longer I'm going to be alive. But I want you got to notice in this serious passage, how does it end? With celebration. Rejoice. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Four times, uh, it doesn't come out as in English, but it comes out in Greek. Four times the word rejoice is used. And following Jesus is not easy. I probably say that a lot, but maybe it's because I didn't hear that enough in church growing up. Following Jesus is not easy. When you decide to follow Jesus, serious demands are made upon your life. Right? Following Jesus is not the easiest path in life. Being part of a church community, most, I'll look at it, most of you, most of you have been part of a church community your whole life. You have been seeing the pain and the struggle and the heartbreak that comes with being part of a church community. It is not easy to fellowship with other believers. It wasn't easy for Paul either. And he was frustrated at these churches he, he helped uh, found. He was imprisoned. He wasn't, a, he wasn't sure how much longer he was going to live. And yet, he was joyful. How was Paul joyful? I think Paul was joyful because he had given his life to something that mattered. He had given his life to something that was bigger than himself. He hadn't given his life to something cheap. He'd given himself his life to something costly, the pearl of great price. And Paul was confident, no matter what happened in this life, Jesus had died, Jesus had been raised from the dead, Jesus reigned as Lord, and Jesus was coming back. That's what Paul proclaimed, and that's what we proclaim at this table. We proclaim that Jesus has died, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that Jesus is coming back. And it's within this feast, it's within that remembrance and this feast that binds us together as a body again that we experience joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word from Paul to the church in Philippi that then comes to us, Lord. We know it is a serious word. We also know, Lord, it is a joyful word because it is a joy to follow Jesus. It's not the easiest path, Lord, but it is the most joyful path. And we just thank you 
that through his death and resurrection and now reigning as Lord, we have a king who loves us and who is coming back one day to establish the new heavens and new earth, Lord. And we just look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.